North Shore Church audio podcast. To find out more information about North Shore Church, please visit us at mynsag.com. We hope you enjoy today's message. I hope you guys are doing good. Again, if this is your first time, thank you for being here with us. You picked a good one to be a part of. If you have your Bibles, open up to Song of Songs or your Bible may Song of Solomon. Uh, it may say Song of Solomon. It's right in there. Uh, right towards the middle, Song of Songs, Song of Solomon. Over the last couple of weeks, we have been in a series that we're calling The Bedroom. And what we've been doing, the premise of this is that we've been looking at the bedroom in different life stages. And so a couple weeks ago, we looked at the child's bedroom, and we talked about it being a place of innocence. And we talked about the fact that it is our responsibility as parents to fight for and defend and protect our children's innocence. And, and the fact that we know that one of Satan's primary goals for your children's life is to shatter and destroy their innocence. Last week we talked about the, the bedroom of like the teenager up to the single adult. And we looked at that as a place of integrity. And we also uh, looked at uh, some of Solomon's choices later in life, how one little compromise turned into another one, turned into another one, turned into another one, and it eventually led him to the place where he was completely rejecting God's call on his life. And so today, we're going to look at that third stage. We're going to look at the bedroom of the married couple, and we are going to consider it as a place of intimacy, is a place of intimacy. If you're here and you're sitting next to your spouse today, why don't you reach over there and grab her hand or grab his hand or, or put your arm around him, snuggle up a little bit. It's going to get really, really good, okay? So just so you know, get comfortable or get comfortable, relax. I will say this, um, a couple of disclaimers before we get started. Um, <clears throat> we are going to talk about sex today. We, it is going to be a little bit more of a grown-up conversation. We're going to do our absolute best to be appropriate and, and, and to make these uh, conversations God-honoring. But um, if you do have a, a young child in here today, you may think, you know what, I don't want them to be in this one. You can take them into our children's ministry. They're great over there. Uh, you may be here thinking, you know what, my child never listens when he's in here anyway. I always ask him what the sermon was about. And they, they don't ever listen. They don't ever pay attention. Today they will for whatever reason. And so if you want to go that route, feel free to do that too. I, I don't care. But it, it will get uncomfortable at some point for me. I know this. Um, for you, I hope so. Just so you can feel uh, what I feel here. Uh, we are going to talk about sex. There's some debate over whether or not we should even be discussing this issue in our churches and from the pulpit. Um, some think that, that this has no room. There's no business to have these kind of conversations at church in this way. Um, some, some say, yeah, absolutely we should be talking about this. Others say, no way, never should you be preaching on this subject. In fact, there are some who think, you know what? Our official church stance on this is that um, sex does not occur, and even though the nurseries are filled with babies, there was no sex had in the making of those babies. Our stance is that storks deliver babies Dumbo style, and that's just the way it happens, right? And, and there are some people who, who think that that should be the extent of the sex conversation within church. One of the things that makes this topic so tricky to address from a biblical perspective is that um, we all have a different filter that we view sex through. And, and even Christians, even people who are uh, believing Jesus and Jesus at the center of my life and at the center of my family and at the center of my relationship and at the center of my church, we even view this a, a little bit differently. And so if I were to say, 
um, finished this statement. Sex is, and then, and then made a pause, and then we went around and we got answers, and you filled in some sort of an adjective to help define what sex is or, or the way you see sex. Um, it would, it would, uh, uh, we would have hundreds of different answers today. Because we'd all view it different. And, and they, would, they would run the gamut. Some of you would say something like sex is fun or painful or messy or holy or sin or hot with two T's, right? You have all of these different, different sort of adjectives that you would fill in. You would say sex is uniting or war or boring or dull or thrilling or a burden or satisfying or disappointing or embarrassing or emotional or complicated or difficult or complex. And you could just go on and on and on and on and on. And everybody would have sort of a different take on it. And it's hard to talk about this because we can't really come to an agreement on what it is or, or try to find the, the appropriate sort of launching point to begin to have a discussion. We, we don't come to a general consensus on what it is because all of us have sort of experienced it differently. And so because there are a thousand different filters and perspectives in which Christians, believers, view sex, in order for us to hit every single one, uh, it would require about a year-long series on this topic alone, and I promise you that's not going to happen. It's just not. And so you may be leaving this place today disappointed that we didn't cover it from the, the, the filter that you have. And, um, you know, for that, I, 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 I'm sorry. I would apologize. Uh, but what I would say is that if you, if you find this message beneficial today, and we're going to do our best to address this from a biblical perspective. We're going to look at Song of Solomon chapter 4 here in just a minute. And we're just going to read scripture and talk about it. That's all we're going to do. But if you find this conversation beneficial today and you would like to go deeper in this topic of biblical sexuality existing within a Christian marriage, um, there's a couple of books that I would recommend. Number one would be the book Intimacy Ignited, and it's from two couples that write this together. Two Christian couples are writing this together. Uh, their names are uh, Dillo and Pintus. And so what Intimacy Ignited is, it's essentially a verse-by-verse walkthrough of the book of Song of Solomon, and it's taken from a more literal perspective and not necessarily an allegorical perspective, but a more literal perspective between uh, a man and his wife and their sexual intimacy. And so uh, a lot of the message today, a lot of the content and the, the biblical content will come from that commentary right there. It's good. It's beneficial. I think you would enjoy it. There's also another book by Dr. Kevin Lehman. It's called Sheet Music, like S-H-E-E-T, Sheet Music. And, and it's, uh, let me see, see the, the subtitle here. It's Uncovering the Secrets of Sexual Intimacy in Marriage. Again, it's by Dr. Kevin Lehman. He's wrote many Christian books. Um, the birth order book, several others, but you would find this helpful. It's, it's, um, it goes in depth, in detail, and so it would answer a lot of questions that you may have in this. And so you might find those beneficial. If you want to write those names down, you, you certainly can, or those titles down, you can. Uh, there's a line from a book called Every Man's Battle that I'll never forget. I read this years ago. The author says this, before you're married, Satan does everything he can to get you to have sex with your girlfriend. After marriage, he does everything he can to keep you from having sex with your wife. Everybody that I counsel, whether it's premarital counseling or post-marriage counseling, whenever I, I make this statement, I say, do you agree with that statement? And, and almost 100% of the time they're saying, yes, absolutely. That's the tension that it feels like is going on in our life right now. And it's amazing to see how this plays out in, in our lives and even in the church. 
Christians often think that sex is only an issue before you're married because that's really about the only time we talk about it. Like, don't have sex. You know, the Bible says wait. The Bible says wait. The Bible says wait. And we're always looking at it. Sex is bad. Sex is bad. Sex is bad. And, and then we think that once you're married, then, you know, kind of do your thing. And it's no longer an issue whatsoever. But the truth is, Satan has a vested interest in your sex life as a married Christian couple. Amen? That's pretty weak. I figured it would be, but he does, right? He does. He has a vested interest in your sex life if you are a married Christian couple. What he does is he sows frustration. He sows discontent. He sows discord. And what he wants to do is he wants to keep you from experiencing the intimacy that God has designed within that relationship. And, and he does this to get you to compromise. Because if there is frustration, if there is discontent, then you begin to make one compromise after another after another until you are doing things that you never thought you would do on that day when you stood up in front of the church and everybody else and said I do and made your wedding vows and, and promised to love forever. But, but because he sows that discontent and frustration and, and anger and pain into that area of your life, there begins to enter compromise. And so whether it's pornography, which we have instant access to, or um, inappropriate physical relationships with a, a coworker or a friend, um, the devil is constantly working to destroy this part of your intimate relationship with your spouse. And there are some couples in this room and this is an area of struggle in your ministry. And, and though you may not, uh, you know, say it publicly, which is fine, uh, you know in your private life, in your moments where you are there together, you know that this is an area that the enemy is winning in your relationship, that he has sown frustration and discontent and discord. And um, you're ready to experience all that God has for you. And so uh, I, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would guide and direct this discussion for you today and, and that if you want to, go ahead and look into some of those other books. Uh, if, if you need me to remind you what the title of those are, come see me afterwards. If it's embarrassing, say, it's for a friend, not us, it's for a friend, and we'll hook you up that way. <clears throat> but it seems odd that God created sex, but we seldom look to him or scripture to try to discover what he thinks about it. Or we somehow, for some reason, think that God is a prude and, and he doesn't like to even admit that it exists or that he thinks it's gross or bad or for reproduction purposes only. And one of the reasons why it's so easy to look some other place than the Bible for our ideas, standards, and thoughts about this is because for years and years, the church as a whole, in general, has had a very cold, distant, um, I don't want to talk about it, view of, of this topic. And how exactly this started or when, nobody really knows why. I don't think that there was a group of, of early church leaders that sat in a room and, and called the meeting to order and said, you know what we need to do as a church? We need to make sure that everybody thinks that, that sex is boring and rigid and it needs to happen quickly. And, and I don't think that that happened, but there was something that began to change when the early church began to express their views and their standards. And more importantly, it wasn't just their, their views of sex, it was their views of marital sex, the sex that God blesses. It feels like I'm saying the word sex an awful lot today, and it's just weird, but okay, we're, we're just going to keep going here. And so this is what it says, and, and I came across this research. It said in 200 AD, 
Church authorities issued edicts forbidding sex on Thursdays, the day of Christ's arrest, on Fridays, the day of his death, on Saturdays in honor of the Blessed Virgin, and on Sundays in honor of the departed saints. Wednesdays, Wednesdays sometimes made the list too, as did the 40-day fast periods before Easter, Christmas, and Pentecost, and also feast days and the days of the apostles, as well as the days of female impurity. The list escalated until only 44 calendar days remained available for marital sex. And this is what the church was pushing out. Seems a little odd, yes? Can we just at least admit that? And as these early church fathers began to kind of champion these anti-sex standards within the marriage relationship, they began to take on a little bit of a weird, unnatural obsession. A few thousand years later, in the mindset of this England's Victorian virtues, we see this take a weird, a weird turn. And in this time period, in this time frame, they were extremely modest. Extreme modesty was the role of the day. And listen, we live in a day where we need a return to modesty. Amen? We need to go back there. We need to be reminded that, that um, our bodies are a temple and to be treasured and, and there are private, intimate moments and we don't need to free anything. We need to honor God and our spouses and, and we need a return to modesty. But what they did is they took this to an extreme level. In, in fact, in that day, it would have been uh, classless or sleazy if a woman had the audacity to expose her ankles in public, Right? So according to that mindset and standard, there's, sorry ladies, there's a few of you here that are class, classless and sleazy, according to that extreme modesty standard, okay? And uh, this attitude, listen to this, listen to how crazy it was. This attitude was so ingrained into the lifestyle and into the church that people began covering legs of furniture so they wouldn't arouse any impure thoughts. Makes sense, doesn't it? And it seems funny, but this is sort of the sexual baggage that the church has been wrestling with for years. This is the traditions and this is the feelings that, that a lot of, of what we think now is based on. That's why, that's why this is such a difficult message and topic to talk about today because of all that stuff that we've wrestled with in the past. And, and um, for centuries, the church has viewed marital sex as a burden, scandalous, and dirty, and, and they're wrong, right? That's a wrong thought. The problem with this view that, that is so anti-biblical in its extreme is that the pendulum will and has swung from, from extreme legalism over here with those Victorian standards, right? Extreme legalism. And, and people in that day, there eventually becomes like a reality that, man, this is not what God had for us, all the way over here at extreme legalism, and the pendulum begins to swing, and we try to figure out what God's plan, what his will is for our life here in the middle, but it, we very rarely go from extreme legalism back to God's will. What happens is, oftentimes in the church and in the world, we go from extreme legalism past what God's plan and design is for us, all the way over here to extreme liberalism. And that's what we see in our culture and in our world and even oftentimes in the church today. It's, it's we've gone from extreme legalism to extreme liberalism and what we need today is not a legalistic view of sex or a, or a liberal view of sex, but a biblical view of sex. We need to know what God thinks we need to know what God's design was. We need to know what God wants for us in this area. So 
we often have messages like, you know, speaking to youth and talking abstinence and, you know, sex is bad. You know, we take, we hit it from that perspective. Wait, you know, till you're married. But we very rarely have the sex is good conversation at church. That's a lot harder one to have. But we're going to do our best to have the sex is good conversation today. Okay, fair enough? So this is what the Bible says. This is Song of Songs. Um, it's a collection of poetry written by King Solomon, and it's before his time of compromise. We, we saw last week how, how uh, the enemy kind of got in, and there was compromise after compromise, and he turned from the Lord. But this is still when he was following the Lord faithfully. And in this, we get a glimpse of a healthy, complex, loving sex life between a young married couple. Poetry is often written in a way to provoke some kind of imagery and elicit some sort of an emotional response, and, and so it probably will today, maybe, potentially. Um, however, there is in this a common refrain that exists throughout the entire book of Song of Songs. You find it in chapter 2, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 5, and chapter 8, verse 4, and, and it's speaking of this kind of sexual intimacy. When you look at this as more a literal translation rather than an allegorical translation, and it's speaking of an appropriate time and appropriate parameters that this entire conversation must exist in. And this is what um, the, the woman in this relationship says over and over again to the young virgins there in Jerusalem. She says this, promise me, O women of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and the wild deer, not to awaken love until the time is right. So they're having these conversations and they're talking about these things, but the wife in this situation is saying, look, this type of intimacy, this type of physical love is only appropriate within the bounds of marriage. That's the, that's the confines that God has placed around this. So the intimacy that is described in Song of Solomon exists within the parameters of the marriage bed. And we're reminded of this over and over and over again. Don't awaken love until the time is right. And so the marriage relationship and the intimacy that God has designed to exist within the marriage relationship is the underlying context for the entire book. So let's dive in and see what chapter 4 tells us. Um, most commentaries that take this literally will say that chapter 4 is a glimpse into their wedding night. And so that's the situation that we have here. Solomon and his new wife, Terza, have just gotten married. Okay, the party is over. There's no more cakes, no more pictures. Everybody has done the chicken dance a hundred times and we're all good. They've thrown the flowers and, and everybody has gone home. And now we find Solomon and his wife there in the honeymoon suite. So you're following me with the context, right? We're, we're going to try to stay as, as God-honoring and as appropriate as we possibly can, but that's, that's the appropriate context of what's going on. And we, through this portion of Scripture, get to see a glimpse into how this whole thing went down. And it grows in its intensity, and, and what happens is in this moment, Solomon 
begins to speak poetry and he's speaking love and life to his bride and, and there's sort of a pattern to this where he's, he's looking at her and he's taking her in from the top of her head, you know, on down her body and he's making comments about her. And so what we're going to do, we're just going to read scripture and talk about it, read, talk about it, read, talk about it. So chapter 4, Song of Songs, verse 1. This is, this is Solomon's first words to his new bride there in the bridal chambers. He says, you are beautiful, my darling, beautiful beyond words. He calls her my love, my darling. He has sweet nicknames for her. These are terms of endearment and intimacy. He says, your eyes are like doves behind your veil. In that day, doves were considered to be intensely loyal birds. And uh, they often served as a symbol of purity and innocence. And so he's looking at her and he's saying, you, you are intensely loyal and there's purity in you and there's innocence and there's this sense of mystery as you're, you're peeking at me through your wedding veil and and, and there's just all of this excitement that is building inside of him as he's anticipating the, the, the moments to come on his wedding night. He says this in the second part of verse 1. He says, your hair falls in waves like a flock of goats winding down the slopes of Gilead. This is awesome, right? Good stuff. Listen, if you're sitting next to your wife, why don't you turn to her and say, you look like a goat today, baby. It's good, Right? Man, you look good. And it's oftentimes in this where we read it where some of those things lose sort of context. You know, some things get lost in translation and, and we think this is like the urge moment. He's lost it. He's ruined the mood. Just like some of you guys do all the time. You're trying to, sweet, to say sweet things and trying to be all romantic and then you say something dumb and she's like, enough. I'm out of here. I'm over it. You're like, I was trying, baby. And, uh, and, and so that's kind of what we, we think is happening here. But the reality is he's pretty smooth. Solomon is kind of a smooth dude. And, and he's referring to these, these goats that, that run down the slopes of Gilead. And it was actually a very romantic statement. And, and these black goats have long, silky hair, hair glistening in the sun. And, and so it, it, and, and many commentaries say that it would, it would almost look like a black sparkling river that was going down. And um, he's saying, man, your hair reminds me of this grace and this picture of tranquility and majesty majestic beauty and it just evokes all of these feelings and emotions of just the divine inside of you and and oh man your hair honey is just so nice and so he's actually speaking very romantic words he says in verse two your teeth are as white as sheep recently shorn and freshly washed your smile is flawless each tooth matched with its twin again probably not compliments that you're writing in your love letters Remember when you were in junior high and you were writing love letters to your girlfriend? You probably weren't thinking, oh, baby, your teeth are so eh, average because you probably brushed like three days ago. But hey, you know, we're junior high, so what does it matter right now, you know? Like, but what he's saying is this isn't a mood killer. Again, we have to remember that. Um, what, in that day, this would have been a, a rare form of beauty um, in an age where there wasn't very much like oral hygiene or dentists or anything like that. So, so to have a perfect smile, to have a, a white smile with teeth straight would have been a very rare form of beauty in that day. And so he was acknowledging this about her. He says in verse three, your lips are like scarlet ribbon, your mouth is inviting. So we don't know whether she had lipstick on or whether it was just her natural color. Um, we don't, that part is unclear, but his desire for her is not. Your lips are inviting. And you know, it's very obvious, kind of like your lips are drawing me in. And, 
and you know, I want them and, and all that good stuff. This is very, it's, is it hot up here? It's, is it, it feels hot here. <laughs> he says in, in the second part of verse three, he says, your cheeks are like rosy pomegranates behind your veil. He's comparing her rosy cheeks to the color of pomegranates when they're at their ripest and their sweetest. And, and so we have to stop here because... Again, not to, to be funny or clever or inappropriate in any way, shape, or form. We have to redeem this aspect of our relationship that the enemy has completely hijacked. Amen? Because this area of sex, Hollywood tells us it's one thing, and, and history tells us it's another thing, but we have to understand that God has designed this in a way to create massive intimacy within the marriage relationship. And so even in this context, it probably isn't, um, Solomon standing on one side and his bride standing on the other side and, and um, he's looking at her across the room and, and he's commenting on her hair and her eyes and her teeth from across the room. Probably more realistically is that they, they are laying down and they've come together and, and he's speaking love and he's speaking poetry to her and, and he's commenting on her beauty and, and he's saying, man, everything about you I find lovely. And, and he's making these comments starting from her eyes to her hair on down. And, and the reality is that in, in this setting, um, most likely he's punctuating every single tender statement with a kiss or a soft caress or a touch. And he's just moving on down her body. And we notice the patience here. Solomon was a wise man, and, and in this loving kindness, he shows his bride that he's going to operate with, with tenderness and patience towards her, understanding that men and women are wired different sexually. And so he's speaking life-giving words and, and romantic words to his bride as he's, as he's commenting on her beauty and working his way down. He doesn't rush anything. He doesn't burst into the wedding chamber and says, all right, baby, let's do this. You know, he's, he's taking care of her. He's romancing her, and he is, he's loving her in a very intimate, tender way. And the compliments and the kisses, they just continue on down her body. Verse 4, he says, your neck is as beautiful as the Tower of David, jeweled with the shields of a thousand heroes. Again, this loses, you know, some of its, you know, translation here. And he's not saying, like, you have a big, strong neck, and you got veins sticking out like Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's not saying that. But in this, he's not complimenting her physical beauty. He's talking about her internal beauty. He's saying, honey, your, your, your neck is strong. And he says, you are not just a woman of beauty, though feminine and, and beautiful and soft and sweet. You are a woman of strength. You are strong and dignified. You are a woman that is proud, a woman of character, a woman that is able to hold her own in conversations and decision making. You are going to be a strong leader and he's commenting on her internal beauty. He's commenting on her, her character and her integrity and he's saying, your neck is strong. You hold your head up high. You have every reason to be proud. Don't you dare be ashamed. There are some who suggest that she was a foreigner coming in and he says, you stand strong. Keep your head up. I love that about you. You are a strong woman. Essentially what he's saying is you're gonna make a great queen. I will find a source of strength and courage in you. It's so much more than physical attributes in the beauty that he's speaking over his young bride. Again, he's not just saying, oh baby, you're so hot, I want you. He's speaking to her physicality, but he's also speaking to her spirit. Understand what's happening here? This is the intimacy that God intended to take place in the bedroom 
of a married couple. That's a good opportunity for you to say amen, but I appreciate you leaving me hanging all the time. Let's just keep going. Verse 5. <clears throat> he says this. He goes on. He's moving down. All right? He says, your breasts are like two fawns, twin fawns of a gazelle, grazing among the lilies. I need to, my grandma's looking at me, so I got to stop this. <clears throat> Look away. <clears throat> on the screen. Look away, grandma. It's funny. <laughs> Whew. So, let's keep going. So he's speaking about her and there's very feminine parts of her. He's talking about the softness of her breast. It displays a lightfulness and, and a playfulness. And, and it's, it's interesting. In chapter 5, as they have these conversations back and forth, in chapter 5, Terza is speaking to Solomon and, and she references Solomon's lips as lilies. And, and this is where some of the commentators get this idea, this impression that he is kissing her after each compliment in, in the reference to the lilies. And, um, and so the reference to the lilies here, again, may reference his lips and his kisses. And, and this is why many believe that, like I said, he's, he's kissing on down her body. And he says, twin fawns of a gazelle grazing among the, the lilies. And so, so it's like he's, he's saying, hey, we're just going to stay here and hang out for a minute and graze, right? <laughs> Hold on. And I get it. Look, at this point in the message, like, I know some of you are probably upset at the direction this is taken. Others are shocked that this is in the Bible. You're like, man, I need to read more. <clears throat> you know? And some of you are thinking, best sermon ever. Yeah. But I know it gets uncomfortable, but it, it shouldn't. The only reason why this is uncomfortable is because the enemy has hijacked this time of intimacy that God has designed for the married couple. In verse 6, he continues, he says, before the dawn breezes, or before the dawn breezes below, and I can't even read anymore, before the dawn breezes blow and the night shadows flee, I will hurry to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. And so in this, the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense are both referencing the same thing. On several occasions in this book, uh, the, the, the Song of Songs uses the term garden to symbolically reference the female genitalia. And, and on several occasions, uh, myrrh and frankincense are described as characteristic scents that, that emulate from the garden. Um, oddly enough, this is where his progression down her body stops. I don't know. We'll just leave that out there. And then after that, he steps back and he takes an overview of, of his new bride again. Verse 7, he says, you are altogether beautiful, my darling, beautiful in every way. And, and, and it's as if he, he, he raises the sexual temperature in the room and, and he's kissing on her and he's loving on her and it's tender and it's sweet and the temperature is rising. And then he steps back and he says, I want you to know that it's so much more than just your body to me. 
It is so much more than the way you look. It is so much more than the way you feel. It is so much more than all of that stuff. I want you to know that you are altogether beautiful to me. Everything about you is beautiful to me. Your smile is beautiful. Your humor is beautiful. The, the way you think how smart you are is beautiful. Your leadership integrity to me is beautiful. The way you laugh is beautiful. The way you say this one word wrong and everybody knows you say it wrong but you always say it wrong and it makes me laugh too. Even that's beautiful to me. Everything about you I find beautiful. Even time with your parents in moderation is beautiful to me. Everything about you is beautiful. And so he sort of puts, pushes pause on that button. He steps back and he says, oh honey, oh darling, oh my treasure, oh my love, I love you in every way. He says, come with me from Lebanon, my bride, come with me from Lebanon, come down from Mount Amon, from the peaks of Sinair and from Hermon where the lions have their dens and leopards live among the hills. Notice again what's happening here. He's just taking time. This is the wedding night. He's no doubt eager to consummate this marriage, but before he does, he fills her emotionally. He fills her spiritually. He fills her cup. He lavishes praises on her. He lavishes compliments on her. And though it sort of kind of feels a little hot, you know, with all, with all of this stuff going on, this is, this is the kind of sexual intimacy that God has designed for the marriage bedroom. The world has identified sex as an event, as a hookup, as a fling, an affair. We call it Netflix and chill now. But too much of that mentality has creeped into the bedroom of the Christian couple. Sex ought to be more than just an event. It's an environment. Sometimes it takes work. Sometimes it takes a little effort to create the atmosphere of intimacy within your bedroom. But you have to work at it. We have to spend more time talking about it. More time communicating. That's where intimacy is going to live in your marriage, not through a physical act, but through verbal communication. We gotta talk. We gotta open up our mouths and speak to each other's hearts. Several weeks ago, it was late, the kids were in bed, they were all sleeping. Yeah. Melissa and I were laying in bed, the lights were off and all that stuff. And you're thinking, where's he going with this one, you know? <clears throat> and what, what happened is we just started talking. We just started talking. We weren't talking about the church. We weren't talking about our kids. We weren't talking about which ministries needed more volunteers to help run. Nursery and Tiny Travelers, if you're interested. But, uh, but we were just talking about ourselves. We were talking about our love. We were talking about the way we got together. And, and we were talking about how our relationship started. And we were talking about our first kiss. And we were talking about our first trip to the movies. And we were talking about, you know, the people that we kind of made mad when we got together. And, and we were talking about that moment that we knew. We were talking about how much we loved each other. And about how that time she walked into the cafeteria in the, in the supper time. Because she was never at the cafeteria. Because she was such a hard stinking worker. She was always gone working. But she walked into the cafeteria that one time. I was like, whoa. Oh, there she is. And it was just, we talked about all of those things. We talked about the fact that when she was moving out and, and she had to kind of move her stuff out for the summer, there was another guy that was supposed to help her move. And I said, well, why isn't he helping you? And she said, well, because he kind of had some um, ulterior motives. And I was like, you know, maybe I have some ulterior motives too. And I was real smooth, real smooth right here, you know. And we laughed about that stuff. But we, we stayed up like, like for hours and hours and we just talked about our love and how much we love each other 
each other and how much we loved each other and how fun that was and how intimate that was and, and, and how exciting that was. And, and, and we talked about the moments that we knew and, and in that conversation there was peace and intimacy and closeness and connection when we just spoke of the love that we had for each other. It was awesome. We just talked. And this is something that I'm not good at. Talking about love and romance, I'm, I'm literally the worst. It just sort of happened by accident, but it made me realize how powerful those conversations are in a relationship. And so if you are married here today, talk about love. Express your feelings for your desire for your spouse. Tell them how they make you feel. Tell them how they fill you up emotionally. Speak those things that you have thought about them. Just tell them how wonderful they are. I love you in every way. Talk about how you first met, how you remember you know, what she was wearing or what he was wearing or the song that was playing. Talk about romance. And listen, he may need a little help in this. He may not be great at speaking romance and stuff like that. You know? But encourage him. You know? Say, hey, good job. Like a little baby who's learning to walk for the first time. Oh, good job. That was bad. You know? <laughs> Hopefully he'll get better, but you know, nice try. Intimacy is going to be realized a lot better through conversation than anything else. Speak. Talk to your spouse. Talk about sex. Talk about what you like, what you don't like, what you want to do. You know, talk about those things. Dr. Lehman says sex in marriage is often 99% action and 1% communication, when in reality it should be 90% communication and 10% action. We need to talk. We need to communicate. That's where intimacy lies. And in this passage of scripture that we're looking at, there's a whole lot of talk, and it's working, right? It's working. There's plenty of action, too, but there's a whole lot of talk, and it's just, it's just increasing the temperature in the room. Verse 9, Solomon says, You've captured my heart, my treasure, my bride. You hold it hostage with one glance of your eyes, with a single jewel of your necklace. He's saying, The way you look at me is driving me crazy. Your love delights me, my treasure, my bride. Your love is better than wine, my per your perfume more fragrant than spices. The way you smell is driving me crazy. Your lips are as sweet as nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. Now it would seem that she's starting to kiss on him. He's like, baby, your kisses are driving me crazy. Your clothes are scented like the cedars of Lebanon. I know it seems odd, doesn't it, to be given a play-by-play -play of their wedding night. I get this, but I think, again, that it's important for us to see that biblically there is no shame in the wedding bed. There's no shame in it. And it's private, yes, and it's intimate, yes. That's why it's spoken in poetic form um, to, to sort of um, protect the, the intimate things. But, but it's written in a way for us to very clearly see what's happening here. And God is very intentional in this. And it's as, as, it, it's as if he's saying, sex in marriage was my design. It was my plan. And I made it in a way for it to be fun, for it to be blessed, for it to be exciting, for it to be passionate, and for it to create intimacy in this one relationship that is different than any other relationship that you will ever experience on this earth. It was his design. It's helpful to see sex from his divine perspective, isn't it? Because we've seen it from Hollywood's perspective. We've seen it from the media's perspective. Why don't we work to see it from God's perspective? Again, we don't want a legalistic view or a liberal view. We want a biblical view. Verse 12, he goes on. He says, you are my private garden, my treasure, my bride, a secluded spring, a hidden fountain. What he's doing here is so cool. He's praising her virtue and her virginity. He's marveling at the fact here that, that this part of the relationship 
he is the only one on earth that will ever get to experience this with her. He's praising her virginity. He's praising her virtue. He's saying, uh, there is nobody else who will drink from this fountain. Nobody on earth. This is my private fountain. And the world says that, that um, uh, this type of intimate, um, one with one relationship where nobody else will enter the marriage bedroom is boring. The world says you have to have multiple partners. You have to figure it out. You have to do all of this stuff. But Solomon is saying, man, it so fills me up to know that this part of you, I am the only one that will ever get to experience and, and, and you are the only one that will ever get to experience me. And eventually he compromises and he turns his back on all of that's commitments. But there is something radically intimate and, and there is a, a fire in monogamy that the enemy has hijacked when it comes to sex, yes? How many partners have you had? How many people have you been with? One, praise God. One. Man, and it's awesome, right? We need to restore this. And Solomon is saying, oh man, it is so cool because I'm the only one. Private access. Verse 13, he goes on. He says, your thighs shelter a paradise of pomegranates with rare spices, henna with nard, nard and saffron, fragrant calamus and cinnamon, with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, and every other lovely spice. You are a garden fountain, a well of fresh water streaming down from Lebanon's mountains. Again, he's saying, you're my private garden. I'm the privileged one. I will find strength, peace, pleasure, intimacy, romance, refreshment in you. It's pretty sweet here. And it's so much more than just sex in this, isn't it? So much more. The marriage bed shouldn't be defined by just sex, but intimacy. And there's a difference. There's a difference. So up to this point, Solomon has been doing all the talking. And he's been acting as a thermostat, sort of raising the temperature in the room. And at every level, her desire is increasing to match the temperature that he's, he's setting. And, and so now, verse 16, she speaks for the very first time. She, she comments. This is her talking. And I'm not going to comment on what she says. I'm just going to let it. Um, you can figure it out here. This is what she says in verse 16. Arise, north wind. Rise up, south wind. Blow on my garden and spread its fragrance all around. Come into your garden, my love. Taste its finest fruits. And so she's not shy about anything. She's just like, okay, it's time. And in that moment, after that, Scripture goes appropriately dark. You see this? It goes dark. And, and, and Scripture gives them the privacy that they need to to consummate this intimate part of their relationship. And so all of the buildup, it goes dark. They, they have their, their privacy. And, and, and then it comes back in, in chapter 5, verse 1. And I believe this is a continuation of the scene. Solomon speaks again. He says, I have entered my garden, my treasure, my bride. I gather myrrh with my spices and eat honeycomb with my honey. I drink wine with my milk. The second part of this verse, and in this moment, i I, I got to be careful. And I, I want you to know... I, I'm not comfortable talking about this stuff up here. I don't do this for a laugh or for a kitschy thing or like, hey, my pastor talked about sex today. I, I don't like talking about this stuff. It's weird. But I think it's so important for us to see the design that God has created in this and to see God's thoughts on it. I think it's important for us to see the picture that, that Scripture paints and then see God's response because in the second part of verse 1, um, some believe that this is the daughters of Jerusalem commenting on their love. But it would seem in this that, that whoever is commenting on the second part of verse 1 has, has been a visible spectator, an in-room spectator. And, and the virgin daughters of Jerusalem would not have been invited into the wedding chamber, but it's somebody else altogether. 
And so the second part of verse one says, oh lover and beloved. That means somebody is speaking to the lover and the beloved. Somebody is speaking to Solomon and his bride. And he says, eat and drink. Yes, drink deeply of your love. So who could this be that is offering commentary after all of this and says, be blessed, eat and drink and be drunk with love? none other than God and this feels so weird to us so weird because we've allowed the enemy to hijack a biblical understanding of what sex is in our marriage relationship it's God speaking a blessing over this young couple and saying yes this type of intimacy is what I had in mind for this relationship you are filling each other up. You are, you are speaking life to each other. You are embracing in a way that nobody else but you can fill. Yes. Be blessed. Be blessed. And God speaks blessing over their marital intimacy. And this is God's will for them, but this is also God's will for you who are married. His design for you. His plan for you. God wants to bless your marriage bed. Amen? God isn't ashamed about this. He's not embarrassed about this. Like, too many times we think, okay, wait till the kids are in bed and wait till God's not looking and we can do this. No. Like, God wants to speak blessings over this. Like, it's a part of it. It's a part of his blessings for you. And it's not just for procreation. It's for radical intimacy within the marriage relationship. And if you're here today, I want you to know God wants to bless your intimacy. I would even suggest <laughs> the next time you, uh, I guess, have a Song of Solomon chapter 4 encounter. I don't know how else to say it. And while you're still wrapped up in each other's arms, pray. Say, God, bless this marriage. Bless this intimacy. God, we invite you into our bedroom. Because I believe what would happen is if we would... Again, and I know it sounds weird, but it's because we've been so hijacked for so long. But if we would invite God back into the bedroom, we would experience intimacy in this relationship that we've never felt before in our lives. But for whatever reason, Hollywood or history has convinced us to kick God out and don't ever invite him back. Well, God has a plan. He has a design for you. Don't let the enemy destroy what God wants to bless. Stand to your feet. I'm just going to pray over you. In a world full of sexual innuendo and half-naked people everywhere, in a world in which sex is defined a million different ways, it's good to know that God's word is still the ultimate authority on every matter, including this. Amen? And it's good to remember that God blesses this, and it's his design. He's created this for you to enjoy intimate relationship with your spouse. I've heard it said that sex is like nuclear power. In marriage, it's like a reactor that will bring energy, life, and passion to your entire marriage. Outside of marriage, it's like a nuclear bomb. It can be messy, bring destruction, and poison your life. I believe that the hope of the world is the church. I believe the strength of the church lies in the strength of the marriage relationships that exist within the church. 
This is a relationship that the enemy wants to destroy. And this is an area that he uses time and time again to destroy it. Let's invite God back into that process. Let's view this through God's eyes. Let's do our best to experience God's blessing. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If you'd like to connect with us or if you want more information about North Shore Church, please visit mynsag.com.